Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the March 2022 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. This spring, I invited all of the candidates running for Sonoma County Sheriff to be on one of our shows so you can get to know them better. And while in many cases, an election for sheriff wouldn't be particularly exciting, I think this year's election is definitely an exception. There are so many challenging issues facing law enforcement in general, but especially here in Sonoma County. And there are some standouts, including how the department relates to the very large LGBT community we have. Tonight, Carl Tenenbaum is with us, and he's coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, March 27th, 2022. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of March 27th, 2022. This week, we're taking a close look at the most recent municipal equality report published by the Human Rights Campaign. It's the 10th such annual report of how local municipalities are doing with supporting, serving, and including LGBTQ people. The survey is, of course, voluntary, but according to the Human Rights Campaign, a growing body of research shows that openness to diversity and inclusiveness is not a byproduct of communities that achieve economic prosperity, but rather a key element in the formula that leads to economic growth. The Fortune 500 has long utilized inclusive workplace policies as proven recruitment and retention tools. Diversity and inclusion enhance an employer's reputation, increase job satisfaction, and boost employee morale. Municipalities and their employees similarly benefit from LGBTQ inclusive workplace policies and practices. The 2021 Municipal Equality Index included rating 506 municipalities of varying sizes drawn from every state in the nation. These include the 50 state capitals, the 200 largest cities in the United States, the five largest cities or municipalities in each state, the cities home to the state's two largest public universities, including undergraduate and graduate enrollment, 75 cities and municipalities that have high proportions of same-sex couples, and 98 cities selected by the Human Rights Campaign and Equality Federation state groups, members, and supporters. Cities are then rated on a scale of 0 to 100 based on the city's non-discrimination laws, the municipality as an employer, services and programs provided to the community, law enforcement, and leadership on LGBTQ equality. There are 100 standard points possible and 22 flex points. These are points that are awarded for items which apply to some, but not all cities. All public scores are capped at 100 points. So this year, 110 of the 506 cities scored a perfect 100 on the index. This is up from 94 cities last year. And nationally, the average score was only 67, but half of the cities score better than 69, with 25% scoring over 96. Now, tragically, eight of the cities scored a zero. But this year's index shattered many records in a good way. More cities offering transgender-inclusive health care benefits to city employees than last year, a total of 181, despite the standards for credit tightening this year. There were 74 all-star cities, cities that scored above 85 points, despite being in states where no state-level explicit statutory non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people exist. This compares to just 61 last year. And 43 of the municipalities have anti-conversion therapy ordinances in states that have no state-level protection. This is up from 38 last year. And as you might expect, Bay Area cities fared pretty well. San Francisco and Oakland both earned a perfect score of 100. San Jose, 
the 10th largest city in the United States, scored a 97. But here in Sonoma County, only two cities were rated. Santa Rosa scored just an 80 and Guerneville a 94. Now, one of the areas rated by the Municipal Quality Index is law enforcement. There are two standards, including if the agency reports hate crime statistics to the FBI and if the agency has a dedicated LGBT liaison officer to the LGBT community. Currently, law enforcement agencies in the United States are not required to report hate crime statistics to the FBI, and in fact, many don't. This is problematic because cities are able to hide the problem of hate crimes simply by not reporting any. While both Santa Rosa Police Department and the Sheriff's Department, which patrols Guerneville, do report hate crimes to the FBI and got points for that, surprisingly, neither agency has a dedicated LGBT liaison officer. This improvement alone could bolster the scores for both law enforcement agencies by 10 points. The Human Rights Campaign said the 2021 Municipal Equality Index is a celebration in more ways than one. It shattered many records, including the number of perfect scores and the highest average city score. It demonstrated growth in every region of the country and showed that regardless of what's happening in the state legislature, local leaders understand the ongoing need to ensure that their people in their communities are safe and seen and served. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. The sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer for the county, and in California, voters get to select the sheriff. This person's responsible for running the county jail and providing law enforcement services to the unincorporated areas of the county, like Guerneville, as well as to cities that contract for law enforcement services, like Windsor and Sonoma. This June, Sonoma County voters will select the next person to lead this critical law enforcement agency and the person who will be charged with making change. Tonight, one of the three remaining candidates in the race is with us. His name is Carl Tenenbaum. Carl, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Greg. Great to have you here and to get to know you a little bit. Uh, this is an exciting race, and we're taking the time this spring to share the backgrounds of each of the candidates here. So let's jump into it and have you start out by talking a little bit about your background and what drew you into law enforcement. So my, my background is I was born and raised in San Francisco. I'm the second of six kids. Uh, my dad drove a Greyhound bus for a living. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And uh, being the second of six, I had a lot of uh, freedom early on because my mom was busy raising the family. So I spent a lot of time running the streets and just being kind of a, being a city kid. I grew up in the outer Sunset District, which is a working class neighborhood. Back then it was primarily uh, Irish and, and, and parish driven, but there was a lot of um, a big uh, influx of Asian and, and Chinese community. And that's the neighborhood that I grew up, product of the public schools. Uh, got out of high school, went to community college, uh, became a certified uh, paramedic. Mm. And I worked on the city ambulances in the late 70s, early 80s. And, uh, and I had always, I grew up with a healthy respect of law enforcement. My dad was a, a big, you know, big re respect. It was old school back then. And I always wanted to be a cop. I just thought it was a really cool job. My dad had friends that were, were city cops. They would come by our house when I was growing up. And I always looked up to them, admired them. So after I did a couple of years as a paramedic, uh, there was an opportunity. The San Francisco Police Department was hiring. And I, and I applied and I got hired in 1981. And that was sort of that was sort of the, the background of, of what got me there. Interesting. And, and what what about the job? I mean, you were drawn to, par, to paramedic piece of it, but what about the job of law enforcement really really took hold of you? 
growing up, you know, growing up, like I said, my dad, my dad had a health respect. I grew up with a health respect. I looked up to cops, and, and I just, you know, I, I had this idealistic view of what of what police officers did, and that was to basically ensure public safety. To, to they were they were our guardians, they were our saviors, and they were people that you that you counted on. I, I just, I, boy, I go back to being in first grade and, and officer plant. I mean, God, 50 years later, I remember officer, 60 years later, I remember officer plant's name. Uh, you know, he came and he gave us traffic safety instruction. And I think I just had it sort of, you know, in my, it was in my DNA to, to really, uh, to really respect law enforcement. And, you know, even in elementary school, I became a crossing guard. So I always had that kind of a, you know, want to help out in this, this, this noble sort of cause thing that I think, is it was was true then of law enforcement is true now so that was sort of the you know the, the the driving you know whether it's the psychology of of my respect for law enforcement but i just saw it as being a very noble profession and i still do mm-hmm. you spent a lot of years in san francisco pd uh talk about some of the special assignments you had that may have prepared you now for this new job you're seeking so so I graduated from the police academy, and and I went to a training station in North Beach, which covered uh, everywhere from covered the Tenderloin down to Fisherman's Wharf. But it was a really busy metropolitan station, and again, with my two years prior on the city ambulances, getting a real sense of of you know being a first responder and responding to emergency stuff. I was working in a really busy neighborhood, so I trained at a busy neighborhood, and, and I learned to respond in kind. And once I finished training, I was assigned a, a walking on a footbeat in San Francisco's mm-hmm. notorious Tenderloin district. Mm-hmm. So I became a real part of that community. I was I was the beat cop, and I had a partner, and every day I yeah, worked a swing shift. We would leave the station, walk down to the Tenderloin, and spend the next eight hours basically among that community. So that really kind of set the tenor for the kind of cop that I was and, and the type of police work that I really believed was the most effective. And that, that was becoming and being a real strong part of that community. Going back to my history of growing up in this city, I always felt that I had a vested interest in, in, in the betterment of my city and my community the, the at large, the bigger community. So that was my, that was my first six years. And and then in 1987, after six years of walking a footbeat in the Tenderloin, I got a phone call um, offering me the opportunity to go down to the narcotics unit. It wasn't something that I was aspiring to. Um, I have to sort of flatter myself by thinking that my work spoke for itself, and that's why I got recruited to go down there. This was also in the 80s, so it was at the, um, when, the, when the crack, crack epidemic was beginning. And so I went down to the narcotics unit, and it was a very paradoxical assignment because I went from being kind of the the community cop really embedded in the community to becoming part of this narcotics almost like a strike force where I I, I jokingly say that I went from being the community cop to being sort of the anti-community cop because now every time I went into a community and it was primarily communities of color we would go in there and it was you know search warrants and 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 really aggressive hands-on police work but it was really kind of a uh, you know, use the phrase hit and run, where we would just come in and make arrests, get out. So that was the second part of the you know, second few years of my career. And, and it was during that time that I started to realize that, that maybe not everything we were doing in law enforcement was, was, so, was so noble, that it was having what we were doing and what I saw that we were doing was having a real 
um, negative effect on the community that we were supposed to be serving. Mm -hmm. we're, we're locking people up, uh, again, primarily people of color. We were sent into communities of color. And yet I knew, having grown up in this city and having worked around, I, I knew that there was there was drug usage was everywhere. No, 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 org, no group of people, no culture had the market on it. So I started to take the long view. And, and the paradox for me was that I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the camaraderie. It was really exciting. It was, it was, it was kind of a rush and, you know, in police work, at least that's what a lot of cops, that's what we want. At the same time, I just saw the, the, the bigger social picture, which was that there was a problem that, that we were not addressing. Mm -hmm. And I really became somewhat cynical of, of the war on drugs at the time, but yet I stayed in it because I was enjoying it. And then about Two and a half years in, I started. I started trying to. I wanted to get out. I wanted to transfer out. I wasn't enjoying the work anymore. And what I was seeing is I was seeing a lot of people getting hurt, and, and not only the people that we were arresting and, and fighting with and wrestling with, and, and you know. And I, I'm part of this operation, and I'm thinking to myself, these people just want to get high. And I know that's an oversimplification, but a lot of them have. They're dealing with major social issues, and this is their escape. And yet, we're you know we're fighting with them, we're wrestling with them, and on top of that, cops were getting hurt too. Cops were getting hurt left and right, you know, seriously hurt. And then you know, tragically, in 1989, after two and a half years in the narcotics unit, uh, my partner was in a foot pursuit of a drug dealer. We pulled up to the uh, Bernal dwellings. It's, it's a housing project, public housing project on. Uh, back then it was Army Street. Now it's uh, Cesar Chavez Boulevard. And, and my partner and uh, a team of officers got into a foot pursuit. I was the wheel man. And when I came around the corner, I saw my partner laying in the middle of the street. He'd gotten hit by a car. Mm. And uh, he succumbed to his injuries. So I, I lost mm. a partner in the line of duty in the war on drugs. And so it really, um, really colored my view of that. So I left narcotics. I went back to a patrol assignment and ended up walking a footbeat in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco by Golden Gate Park. And did that for a few years, and then I got an assignment. Again, I would get these random phone calls asking me if I wanted to go to a new assignment, and I ended up getting transferred down to uh, the chief's office. I went to work for the chief of police as a uh, an administrative assistant, and I did that for a couple of years, and that was really uh, an eye opener for me because now I went from being a basic patrol cop, you know, with my history on the footbeat and the narcotics, and now I'm working on the, you know, what do we say, the rarefied air of the fifth floor of the Hall of Justice, um, as an administrative assistant to the chief of police, and he. He was a really, uh, Willis Casey, a really dignified man, took me under his wing and sort of gave me entree into how, you know, how the administration works. And I learned about, you know, budgeting issues. I, I was uh, really helped him, not directly, but with staffing issues. We were, I was kind of his confidant. So I learned how the police department worked. I learned how it functioned. And I just remember thinking to myself that every single police officer should be assigned to the chief's office or to the administration bureau for at least six months. So they mm -hmm. learn what's going on up there. So that's where I really learned um, how, how the administration worked and, and how it functioned and dealing with the political aspects of what were, was going on. There was actually a big political scandal that I was involved in in the chief's office that involved City Hall. So I, I really got to see sort of the inner workings of, of, of how a large major metropolitan police department works, you know, 2,000 member uh, law enforcement agency. And it was, it was really eye-opening and educational. So I did that for a couple of years. Then I left there and went to the district attorney's office. I was assigned there on loan doing white collar crime investigations. Mm -hmm. And from there, I went back to street patrol as part of a uh, robbery task force, working out of the um, uh, near City Hall, it was Northern Station. 
And I did that for a few years. And then in 1996, I got promoted to the rank of sergeant. And when I got promoted to sergeant, they sent me out to uh, the Bayview Hunters Point, which is out where Campbellsick Park used to be. A lot of uh, public housing and a lot of warehouse districts and kind of a, a lot of social issues, uh, primarily a black community. There was a, a large Asian influence over there, um, but it was a, a, an area with a lot of poverty. It's an area that spent a lot of time in narcotics. Now I was out there as a uniformed sergeant and I tell people, I look back on my career in 32 years and I've had some really plum assignments. And yet my, I think it was four years in the Bayview, probably some of my favorite times in the police department. And it's because it was real, it was real work. It was real, there were real social issues to deal with. There was a lot of violence. Um, a lot of drug dealing and just some major issues, but it was also uh, it was also an area that I felt, you know, as, as, a, as a new sergeant and a new supervisor and a leader of officers, I felt really rewarded in my work. Mm -hmm. I felt it was really it really came back to me and in, 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 in being knowing that I was having an impact is as futile as it felt at times. And after being out there for about a year, I was um, I was given the, the 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 I became the platoon commander of a public housing outreach team, and I had seven officers dedicated to me, and we were working um, uh, shoulder to shoulder with the public housing authority, dealing with every issue that had to do with public housing. We opened two substations and two different housing projects up there, and again, just some of the best years of my life, really, in my police career, I look back and just the most rewarding because, again, being part of a community and a community that wasn't a community that I grew up in, but it was part of my city and, and just really and being embraced by the people, too. That's the other thing is being welcomed in and learning through all of those assignments, the, the, the community's relationship with the police officer and how you build trust with those community. And that was never, never, ever lost on me. And when I talk about my narcotics career, I, I realized that that was what was missing there. There was no, there was no building of trust. There was no, in fact, it was anything. It was a deterioration of trust. So I spent four years in the Bayview Hunters Point and uh, three years running the housing team. And again, just really rewarding work. And then my transfer came up for me to go back to my original station in North Beach. And I, uh, I felt it was time. I'd spent four years in kind of the, you know, the, the rough part of town. And I went back to North Beach. And by then, the Tenderloin had become its own district. So North Beach Station is in, it's primarily a tourist area. It's, it's uh, North Beach, it's sort of the Italian neighborhood. It has Chinatown and Fisherman's Wharf. Um, it's really, really busy. And again, different communities. Italian community has, has their own relationship with the cops, which is pretty good and pretty positive. Um, but then Chinatown is very unique and, and how um, the people that inhabit that community is very dense population. There's not a lot of um, open communication with the people in that community, and yet you build trust. We had beat cops. In, in San Francisco, we have the luxury of having beat cops, and more so then than we do now because of the um, staffing issues. So so that was it. I spent my last 12 years there. In my last year of my career, I was transferred down to the property section. Sort of my, my exit strategy leaving the police department was, was taking a break, getting off the street. And um, I, as I told you prior to taping, I had two bad hips when I retired. So uh, walking the beat and, and jumping in and out of a police car at my age with all the gear on was not was not working There's for time. me. So, so that's that's kind of my, my paper uh, on paper. In addition to that, I had sort of, uh, I, think, I think they call them side hustles now. Um, in the police department, I was a hostage negotiator. I was a crisis intervention uh, training officer uh, or intervention officer. 
I was a uh, peer support, peer mentor officer, and I was also very active in the Police Officers Association. I joined the San Francisco Police Officers Association as a rookie in 1981, and I'm still a dues-paying member 40 years later. And, and as a member of the Police Officers Association, I was, um, I was on the board of directors for a number of years, and I worked on different committees dealing with um, uh, wages and benefits, contract mm -hmm. negotiations. And I also worked very closely with um, civilian oversight as a member of the, the Police Officer Association. So that's kind of the somewhat condensed version of my career. I know there's a lot more that I'm leaving out because, uh, as you can imagine, 32 years in the city, there was a lot. But that's, that's kind of a thumbnail of what I did. Awesome. And most people would be very satisfied with that, you know, retiring the rank of sergeant and having a great career. And now you're jumping in in a very public application way, right? Applying for this job of sheriff. Why? Talk about your motivation. Um, my motivation is, is manifold. I think it started with when I, when I retired, I know that I needed a break and, and I wanted to sort of regroup. It was time for me. I lived in the city my whole life. Uh, my, my fiance at the time who's now my wife. She's a, she's from Santa Rosa. She's born and raised here. And growing up in the city, we used to come up to Sonoma County a lot, whether it's Russian River or, you know, Occidental for dinner, just coming up to the area and even getting older when I used to, I used to ride a motorcycle. We'd come. So I know Sonoma County very well. And I just felt it was, it was time for me to, 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 for change and to come up here, you know, quieter existence. But I still stayed very active and, and involved with law enforcement issues following the national dialogue and looking at some of the misconduct cases nationally. And then after I'd been up here for a few years, I was working with a nonprofit organization that dealt specifically with uh, uh, criminal justice and social justice reform. And uh, two years ago, I was approached by a prior sheriff's candidate, John Mutz, to get involved with the Measure P committee, which was the, the you know, ILRO. And I did. I, I stepped up and I became a speaker for them. And I also did a real, um, a real deep dive onto what the issues were facing the sheriff's office up here. And, and I'll back up by saying I moved up here in August of 2013, and two months later was when uh, Andy Lopez was killed. Mm -hmm. And and I follow that case closely. Again, I've always, I've always had um, a, a lot of uh, trust and faith and admiration for law enforcement. But I also saw the the flaws from inside and and in now. At that point, I was on the outside. So all of that sort of coalesced in the coalesced in the last couple of years. Um, with my work on Measure P, my work with you know, the ILRO committee, and also seeing our current sheriff and what I saw as a real lack of uh, positive and inclusive leadership. And, and I just felt that, that it could be done better and somebody needed to step up and, and do it better. And the committee that I worked on for Measure P, after it passed uh, resoundingly by 65%, we, we changed the committee, turned it into a, a screening committee looking for the next sheriff. And I looked at the criteria and what they were asking for, and I thought, well, these are all things that I believe in, and these are all things that I think that, that should happen in the sheriff's office. It would be nice if somebody stepped up and, and ran for sheriff that embodied that. And the reality started to sink in that nobody was doing it. And the reality also started to sink in that I had a burning desire to sort of get back in the game. And that's sort of what compelled me to get back to, to run for sheriff. And I did a real probably three or four months of real deep research on what it would take, uh, whether I had what it took to, to, to follow this through. And that's why we're talking today. Good for you. 
And, and I want to go to some of those things that you saw that are perhaps missing around values, right? You, you clearly have, with through your experience, some deeply held values that you think are important for law enforcement. Talk about those. And then which ones do you think are missing that you would bring to the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office? You know, when I, when I read your, your questions and, and you ask about my values, and I thought, boy, how do I summarize my values? I mean, I can lean, lean really hard into the community policing, but how do you, how do you define that? And I, and I thought about it, and I had to look up the origins of the phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it really, it, it seems almost an oversimplification, but those are my values. And, and, and as, a, as a street cop and as a community-based police officer, those are my values. My values are valuing life, all life. You know, we talk about community and community policing, but the community is inclusive of all of us. And I think it starts with the community of man, which is global. And then, you know, you just get still down to our, our particular tribes, whatever our tribe is and our family. So there's all these different community dynamics, but I'm a big believer of life and I'm a big believer in liberty. And, and um, I, you know, I've been talking to my wife lately. You make somebody smile, or you make them laugh. You pretty much got them eating out of your hand. So happiness is huge. And, and it's not that hard to achieve. And yet, you know, I, I have, I know that I have the right personality to do what I did and to be a successful cop. But I also worked around people that didn't, maybe should have chosen a different profession, didn't have the skill set, didn't have the level of compassion or empathy that's really required to be a successful law enforcement officer. Because law enforcement is really about public safety and how you deliver it and how you, you give people confidence in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because you have, as a law enforcement officer, you have so much power and authority. So those are my values. And, and, and what I see missing up here is I, I know that morale is low. I know that uh, you know staffing is low. I've talked to people on the inside and on the outside that they're frustrated. There's a level of uh, polarization that permeates all of law enforcement. But up here, I think there's kind of a sometimes it's an excuse that like well there's you know it's rural and they're they're not close and they don't have the luxury of being part of the community. And I just I don't I don't quite buy that. So I think that's really one of the missing links. And as I alluded to earlier, the, one of the other missing links is the, um, the lack of really true. Uh, compassionate and, and community-based leadership. So those are the missing links, and those are the things that I would bring to the sheriff's office. I, I would bring, you know, I would bring me as the sheriff, and I and I and I'm fond of telling people that it all starts with the organizational philosophy. And what is the philosophy of this organization? Is this, this organization under my leadership it would be extremely inclusive? Uh, compassionate, comparing, caring, and, and also building, um, you know, equity with, with again, the entire community. Uh, sheriff's Office is a publicly funded entity, as are law, all law enforcement agencies. The sheriff is an elected individual, so the, the, the voters and the community choose that person. And therefore, there's an obligation by me as the sheriff and the deputies that work for me to return that to the community. I think that's going to be an easy task. I think it's going to be a real challenge. I do. Um, but I also know that I'm up to the challenge and, and I know that um, dealing with the, the, whether it's the resistance from the line officers or uh, people within the administration or even, you know, elected officials to just get them to understand that I did the job for 32 years and I was a very successful and very well-loved police officer. And I think that ultimately, you know, to know me is to love me, like they say, and I think that's how it gets done. Great. 
Let's shift a bit. Uh, yeah. You know, you've been watching the environment uh, throughout your career and beyond, and there have been a lot of pieces of legislation written calling for reform, ordering reform in California. As you look at all of the different bills that have gone through, which ones stand out to you do you think are most important in terms of law enforcement reform? I wrote a I wrote an op-ed for the, the Press Democrat um, last October, and that was right when uh, SB2 uh, went into effect, and, and uh, I think it was SB6. There were a package of deals, uh, laws that were went into legislation. And I think they all have some uh, a very um, uh, positive impact and a much-needed impact. I believe SB2 is the one with... Uh, I get them all confused because now we've got SB 655, which has to do with hate groups. Then we also have the military hardware and they all get a little bit jumbled up. But the one that stands out to me is the, um, um, you know, hiring, basically having a statewide database that, that, that has the requirement to restrict, basically to monitor serious misconduct cases and to, to uh, eliminate officers or law enforcement, you know, personnel, deputies and cops that, that have uh, engaged in documented misconduct, uh, violations of people's civil rights, so that they can't just leave one agency and go to another. And, and I know that, you know, you've been in the business long enough, Greg, to know, and, and I saw it firsthand in San Francisco, where an officer would leave an agency, and it was sort of left under a cloud, but it wasn't an officially documented cloud. And because of this this need for, for personnel to need to hire, we actually did it in San Francisco. We hired people that came to us with less than sterling records. And unfortunately, they engaged in misconduct during their career with the San Francisco Police Department, and it resulted in liability payouts. So that's the big one that comes to mind. But again, there's a comprehensive package. It was just passed. And I think every every step that we take incrementally, if, you know, it, it's unfortunate that it requires state legislation, but everything that we do to sort of to, to bring law enforcement up to speed, you know, to bring it make it a 21st century application, uh, they all have a positive benefit. Yeah. And, and as for our listeners, SB2, if you don't know, is the one that it really decertifies. It's a state... Uh, it's a state-run effort that will look at revoking licenses, essentially, from officers who are found to be involved in certain types of misconduct. Um, so let's talk about citizen oversight a bit. Um, certainly, you experienced that in San Francisco, one of the first Bay Area departments to have a really involved citizen oversight process. What's your experience with it? What do you think? Is it essential? And, and then again, why are some agencies so resistant to it? I mean, I think there's been a lot of, at least a perception that the sheriff's office has resisted the oversight process that was put into place with, for example, the, the voter initiative. So, so my experience in San Francisco is, is I, I joined the San Francisco Police Department in 1981. There were a number of uh, scandals that occurred uh, prior to that and then during my first year, not involving me. And in 1982, uh, the, the voters uh, created an organization. At the time, it was called the Office of Civilian Complaints. I'm sorry, Office of Citizen Complaints. And so for the entirety of my career, minus that first year, I worked under civilian oversight. And, and he, as, a, as a young rookie 
somewhat idealistic and, and really being a part of what I, I like to describe and explain to people is law enforcement has sort of a fraternal organization and there's this sense of belonging to this group and not necessarily the, the us versus them mentality you see now, but still that was a little bit of it. So working under civilian oversight, the perception for the line cop was, oh, they're out to get us. It's, it's sort of the, the big bad wolf. And because the, the the inception of civilian oversight is usually event driven. There's usually a series of events that cause it. Same thing that happened up here. Andy Lopez was the impetus for Ayalero. So you can go throughout the country and see that. So the automatic assumption is that, well, we did something bad and now they want to punish us and, and they want to make sure we don't do it again. So early in my career, and especially when I was working with the, uh, with the, the police union, we resisted it. We fought it. We didn't like it. But part of that had to do with not understanding it, not understanding what, what the end game was and what the goal was. And I think it's still a little fuzzy for a lot of people how civilian oversight works. But over time, when I was part of the um, uh, Police Officers Association, we realized that there was a couple realities. Number one, that, that, that oversight was not going to go away. And, and so then it was like, okay, if they're here, and they're here to stay. We need to understand why, why they're here, what this is about, and how do we, how do we make it the best working relationship that we can. So I spent the better part of my my uh, my time on the board of directors working with that oversight agency, building bridges with them to make it the most effective and workable relationship that we can have, and to try to diminish the adversarial tone that had been set by other um and it's a lot of times it's the union is held uh, responsible the administration generally supported them so that's my that's my history in san francisco and i have to say that i'm very proud as we're talking today a lot of my um, endorsers who you can see on my website are former investigators for the civilian oversight committee and, and a lot of the people that are endorsing me up here in sonoma county are advocates of civilian oversight so I, I, tr I try to explain to people, and, and I will impart this on my deputies when I become the sheriff, that civilian oversight is, is not, in essence, designed to catch people or deputies or cops doing stuff bad. It's designed to create an atmosphere of transparency to where... And I, and I use this phrase a lot, there should be no secrets in law enforcement, with the exception of a very you know, sensitive investigation or you know, critical information that's key to some sort of a, you know, enforcement plan. There really shouldn't be. Again, it's a public entity. So, so civilian oversight is designed to, to make sure that we're doing things to the best of our ability, delivering public safety the, the best way we can. A lot of the issues have to do with training. A lot of the issues have to do with hiring. A lot of the issues have to do with policy, which I'm a big, big firm believer in having really good policies that are very clearly defined to help deputies and cops avoid getting into trouble. And I also explain to people, everybody has a bad day. I went to work several times and I had a bad day and I may have not been on my best behavior, but to have a bad day and to you know forget to book a piece of evidence or to, to be rude to somebody is something that needs to be addressed, but also needs to be understood in context. Whereas if you have a bad policy, uh, bad training, or if you have a bad um, a member of the organization, that has to be addressed and addressed very firmly and fast. So fast forward my history there, when I moved up here, as I, as I said earlier, I was recruited to speak on behalf of Measure P and Ilero, and I saw that, again, I, I know this, I, I did it, and, and it's not, there's nothing they're asking for 
that is that out of line. Um, but but to answer the second part of your, your question, your statement is that there has been resistance by the Deputy Sheriff's Association, which I understand, um, although when I was part of that that mindset, it was 35 years ago, uh, resistance by the Deputy Sheriff's Association and resistance by the sheriff, which I find kind of confounding because the sheriff had the opportunity to build this relationship and build bridges between the, the working, the line officers and Ilero. Instead, he sort of circled the wagons with the Deputy Sheriff's Association has made it that much harder. So now it's caught up in litigation. And I understand it's good due process of the law. I'm a big fan, but it's caught up in litigation. And now we've got the county and the police union or the sheriff's union spending countless amounts of money litigating this issue that could really be resolved by just sitting down at the table and hashing it out. It's not what Iolero is asking for is not too big of an ask. And as the sheriff, I will sit down immediately day one and work to resolve these issues. Meet and confer is the phrase that we're all familiar with in law enforcement and labor circles. And that's what we'll do. We'll meet and confer and it also explaining why we wanted to do this. Great. Well, a lot of our listeners are part of an LGBT community. We have a huge one up here per capita in Sonoma County. Uh, talk about your experience working with the uh, LGBT community either here or in the city or wherever in other parts of your life. Um, well, I, <laughs> I, I saw this question. I had to laugh. And I was going to say, well, Greg, I grew up in San Francisco. I think we could end the discussion there. Uh, I did grow up in San Francisco, and I was, uh, I was there my whole life. So I was there for you know, the, the, the Harvey Milk and, 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 and George Moscone assassinations. And, and, I, and I was downtown in Civic Center during the, you know, the, the aftermath of the Dan White trial. So I've always and, – and, and growing up in the city, you're just – I grew up and that was just part of my community. It was it was just the Castro district and the Polk Street area. And it was just sort of second nature that there was really not that much of a distinction except when those big incidents occurred. So so I, I grew up around the LGBTQ community. And then in law enforcement from day one, the, 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 the police department was really truly reflective of the LGBTQ community. So I've worked with um, shoulder to shoulder in radio car with with members of the community and then also we've had high-ranking administrators it's just such a part of the fabric of San Francisco that it's not even it's hard to really kind of even draw a distinction to a specific community <laughs> again I talk about Chinatown I talk about the Bayview Hunters Point but I can also talk about the LGBTQ community in the same vein that that's just part of the fabric of San Francisco mm -hmm. so it's what I know it's a community that I embrace um, I, I it's yeah it's, it's just sort of second nature to me and then moving up here as I, as I spoke of earlier I spent a lot of time up at Russian River, and I always found it fascinating when, when Guerneville became sort of a, it was a big resort uh, retreat for a lot of, uh, a lot of my gay friends in the police department. In fact, I know quite a few of them have retired up to this area, and I still am in contact with them. Um, so so I, I recognize and appreciate that it is it, it, it's, it's its own community, and yet, like every other community, they bring so much diversity and so much variety into law enforcement and, and into society as a whole. So that's that's kind of my background, and, and it's a community that I fully embrace, and, and I appreciate the fact that they are that there are people from the LGBTQ community up here that um, that are representing. Do you think they're represented in the sheriff's office? 
I don't know the numbers, but I'm going to say no, because everything that I've heard and everything that I've seen is that this sheriff's office does not truly reflect any of the diverse community that it serves, whether it's, you know, the, 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 black, the black community, uh, Hispanic Latin community, which is a big part of Sonoma County, a big part, um, or the LGBTQ community or AAPI. So no, I do not think they do. And that's an issue that, again, needs to be addressed from day one. It's, it's the issue that I see there is um, recruiting and hiring. Um, I've the numbers that I've heard, and I haven't confirmed them that 5% of applicants get hired by the sheriff's office. And what I was told, and I will quote the sheriff's sergeant, not by name, uh, I was having coffee trying to sort of get to learn what the issues were. And this is several months ago. And his comment unsolicited to me was, well, I know we don't represent the community, but how low are we supposed to lower our standards? And I just, I kind of cringe at that statement because of my thought is, well, what are your standards? You know, who's who's in charge of hiring and, and what is it that you can't get more than 5%? And the majority of the people they do hire are laterals from other agencies. So you're bringing them in. So, so the long answer, Greg, is no, I do not think it's represented in this, in, in this organization right. at all. Well, and you talked about the, there are challenges in hiring. I mean, I can't think back on my 40 years of a time when recruiting for law enforcement has been more difficult. So as the sheriff in Sonoma County wanting to create a rank and file that matches the demographics of the people that it serves, what, what would your approach? How would you get people to apply? I, I, think, I think the challenge up here is, is no different than the challenge we're seeing nationwide. My, my son's a cop in San Francisco, and I, and I keep close tabs on what's going on there. Nationwide law enforcement is having a couple of real big challenges. Number one, these these really um, horribly um, uh, celebrated cases. I mean, obviously the one that we all go to is George Floyd. That was just you know it shocked the consciousness of the country. So and, and then the, and then the aftermath, the backlash, and what we saw with these you know the, the civil unrest and then the over response from police and the violence and everything that fell, and then also the political climate of the last four and a half years um, coming from Washington, D.C. So, so law enforcement has really taken a hit uh, image-wise, and, and then coupling with that has been the, the, um, the people that, that basically redefining what we do, um, what law enforcement does. In 1981, things were very straightforward. Uh, we weren't tasking the cops or the deputies with the amount of work that we're asking them to do now. We weren't asking them to resolve every social ill, whether it's you know a drug issue or the mental health issue. So recruiting is sort of plummeted and hiring is plummeted because we're kind of going through this metamorphosis where we have we have to we need to redefine the job and what we expect of people. And if we can take some of these responsibilities, whether it's mental health calls, whether it's you know drug use or substance use um, issues, whether it's uh, neighbor disputes, if we can farm them out or have some other entity manage them and focus more on having a better, more reflective organization, that's how we create and get more people to come on board. Reaching out to the communities like we, we just alluded to, you know, whether it's LGBTQ or Hispanic, any community to do active outreach and say, look, this is an organization that you're going to want to come to work for because I'm the sheriff and I'm a good guy and, and I'm going to make you enjoy what we're doing here. And it's going to be hard at times, but you got to Good contract, you get good benefits, and it's a job you should be proud of doing. So yes, hiring and recruiting are really it's a real challenge mm -hmm. right now because we're we are. I think that law enforcement nationally is really having a difficult time. And you know, I can go back to two years ago when I was at Napa Valley and, and taking the classes there. 
I saw a little bit of progress, but I also had some instructors in there that were sort of parroting things that I heard from the 80s. And I was thinking that, but we, we sort of evolved away from that. You know, it's not the media's fault. Uh, the media plays a role, but it's, you can't, you can't blame anybody else. And I try to explain people that, you know, you can't blame the media for, for, for televising a cop you know, misbehaving or killing somebody, we have to take ownership of that. And then we have to figure out how to make it better. How mm -hmm. do we improve these relationships? Well, and talking about relationships, uh, a lot of departments around the country are using LGBT liaison programs. They appoint somebody to represent the department specifically for the LGBT community. San Francisco was one of the first in 1962 uh, to have someone, but as, as pervasive as they are around the country, there is none that I know of here in Sonoma County, yet we have a county that has a very high ratio of LGBT folks. Thoughts about that? Is that something important that would be important for the sheriff to do, to implement in their department? Absolutely. And, and, and my thoughts are, to be quite candid with you, when I, when I saw your question, when you submitted it to me, I just, wow, I was shocked to know that. Um, and, and my first thought when you said they don't have a liaison officer in my, in my perfect little world, I'm going, well, they probably don't need one because things are, no, things are not that great. I know that. But no, absolutely, especially because it, it is so reflective. I mean, I know, I know that up here there are uh, one current chief and one former chief of, a Sonoma County, of Sonoma County agencies that represent the LGBTQ community. And that's a really... Uh, it's a profound statement, number one, that, that those separate municipalities would hire uh, somebody. And, 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 and it's a statement that we, we want to move forward and, and be progressive and inclusive of every community, and especially because that is such a vibrant community up here. So mm -hmm. absolutely, it's something that I do believe in. And, and, and since you made me aware of it, um, again, maybe not day one because my plate's pretty full, but day two or three, that happens, that we, we do. Because that goes hand-in-hand hand with recruiting, and that goes hand-in-hand hand with training. And, and the more diversity, uh, the more people that reflect the diverse communities, the more progressive the agency becomes and the more inclusive and community-based it becomes. And then that all goes hand-in-hand hand with reducing liability, reducing excessive force complaints, because I just think people that reflect the community have a better relationship with the community, um, and, and, and the results are always, always going to be a lot more positive. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned use of force, so let's shift to that uh, topic now. <laughs> uh, you know, there there have been a number of pretty highly publicized cases. You mentioned Andy Lopez, but that's not the only one where there's been a lot of public scrutiny around the use of force by the sheriff's office. And that, of course, fosters a lack of trust. What's your view? Uh, do you think that there's a legitimate concern here? And if there is, if what's happening is correct and the public believes that it's incorrect, how do you fix, how do you close that gap? What's what's causing this lack of trust then if what is happening is proper and it's not being viewed by the public as proper? Greg, I, I know I know that they say it's easy. It's easy to bunny morning quarterback. It's easy to second guess uh, anybody's actions, whether it is, you know, on the, the field of sports or whether it's in police work. Because I because I have 32 years as a very active cop. I mean, I, you know, I gave you my resume early on. I have an expectation of what good policing is and good police work involves, you know, 
gathering information, basically public safety and, and investigating crimes. Um, the, I don't think it's just a perception up here. The reality is we've had a couple of really celebrated uh, two, two cases that really stand out, uh, Andy Lopez and David Ward. And David, David Ward happened right down, I'm in, I'm in West County, two miles from me is where David Ward was killed. Um, those were those were both incidents of bad police work, you know, bad and bad judgment. And then you can get into the weeds with with, you know, the predisposition of the officer and what their mindset was. And on top of that, we've had the yard counseling situations. We've had situations in Sonoma County that date back to 20 plus years ago when the Commission on Civil Rights issued their report about overall Sonoma County. So the issue is I go back to training number one. And, you know, you, you've been around long enough, you've worked in an academy, you know, I went through an academy. We know the fear-based training is out there. It's, it's necessary to be prepared and alert and ready to, uh, you know, to anticipate a, a worst-case scenario. Sure. But, but, but there's a disproportionate amount of training that emphasizes that, that every, you know, every traffic stop might be your last traffic stop. And we right. know that's a possibility, but it's not a probability. So this is emphasis on that. And then when you introduce all of the, the weaponry and the tactics that have, that have been introduced to law enforcement over the years, where we have, I believe it's, and again, asking the deputies and the cops to do so much with little reaction time or, or critical thinking involved, that's how we end up with these bad outcomes. The other issue for me, and, uh, and I'll circle back again and again and again, is policy. What, what are our policies? I'm, I'm familiar with uh, a lot of the policies up here. I came from an organization that had in-house policies, and they were very, they were, they, were, they were still a little bit vague at times, but for the most part, they were pretty tight to where there just was not that opportunity for the... Um, the reasonably objective officer standard is one that's really malleable. And when you when you allow that to happen and then it turns out that that reasonably objective officer is maybe not that reasonable or objective, that's where we get into to problems. So this goes back to, what do I say, hiring, training, and policy. And, and, and the, the public has every right to be disillusioned and to not trust law enforcement. And I think... You know, it's unfortunate that Andy Lopez happened to begin with. It's also unfortunate that eight years later we're still talking about it because here are the realities of Andy Lopez. The, the way that case was handled from the moment he was killed until this very moment, to this moment that we're talking, the county has never atoned for that injustice. The county has never taken steps. You know, it, they fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. They made that family who suffered the loss of a 13-year-old kid go all the way to the Supreme Court. And in addition to that, the deputy who killed Andy Lopez is still employed by the sheriff's office as a part-time bailiff. And, and I just find that um, insulting. And nobody has ever, ever apologized to the Lopez family. And I know it's easy for me to sit here today and talk to you about the injustice. But I saw, um, I read the reports as soon as it happened. Because, again, I've always kept my eye on law enforcement and, and local law enforcement. And I've followed that thing very closely. And it's just, it's unconscionable. And it goes back to bad police work, bad training, and bad policy. Mm. You'll have your hands full. You'll I have know. Your hands full. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, another major challenge, I think, for law enforcement today, and it's probably we could spend an entire show or more talking just about this problem, is uh, our unhoused community and law enforcement's role in that. It's so complex, and yet I think we expect law enforcement to be able to go in and, and fix it all. What do you think? We have a pretty big homeless population here in Sonoma County. What's the solution? 
I'll, I'll tell you the same thing that the Palestinian kid told me when I was in Israel 14 years ago, and I was perplexed as to why there wasn't peace in the Middle East. And his comment to me was, Carl, there will never be peace in the Middle East. And, and so, so my short answer, and I hate to say it, it, they call it an intractable problem for a reason. It, it's, it's been here, uh, you know, day one in 1981, my first day on the street as a rookie cop, I was in the tent line dealing with the homeless situation. And over the years walking a beat there, I got to know, you know, Father Alfred Brodecker, and I got to know uh, Cecil Williams and Glide Memorial Church and St. Anthony's. So I've been dealing with some form of the homeless situation for the entirety of my adult life as a law enforcement uh, professional. And prior to that, as a first responder on the city ambulances. So I feel that I have a lot more experience than any of the other candidates, let alone half the people in the world addressing the homeless issue. And on top of that, for the past several months, I've been going out every week with a local um, homeless outreach group um, taking food to different homeless uh, encampments and communities throughout here. Uh, so, so the problem is there. How do we address it, and what is law enforcement's role? I think are, the, are what we need to define. And, and first of all, we can we can parse all day. You know, whether it's you know mental health, whether it's a drug issue, uh, you know, whether it's coming from an abusive household. The problem is the the, the the situation, the crisis is homeless and getting people housed. And so we need to address that first and foremost. Now that becomes more of the county's issue. It becomes more of a social services issue. Law enforcement's role should be to facilitate getting people into some form of housing. I don't like the term sweeps. I don't think that law enforcement should be involved in doing sweeps. I think that law enforcement should be there to assist whatever agency it is to help get people into housing or get them out of a situation that is a bad public safety issue for them and also has public safety ramifications for the rest of the community. So defining public um, safety role in law enforcement's role, however, I also have to recognize and acknowledge that if there is a crime, um, a legitimate serious crime that stands alone, that's part of the homeless situation, that needs to be addressed as the crime that it is. There's a saying that you know comes from San Francisco and I think it's universal, homelessness itself is not the crime. And I, and I don't believe in my heart of hearts that anybody wakes up someday and decides they're gonna go you know, sleep in a tent underneath the freeway, but that's what happens. And, and it, it is, it's a, it's a horrible, it's, it's gut-wrenching. Like I said, every week I'm out there and every week I'm talking to people and I'm seeing people that all, all, all gamuts, whether it's mental health or drugs, but I'm talking about, you know, women in their 60s living in their cars. And I just, this is America. And I find it, it's, 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 it's stunning and it's mind-boggling. And to know that Sonoma's problem, Sonoma County's problem, pales in comparison to San Francisco's and Los Angeles's. It's nationwide. And I think that's where you get into the wealth, you know, disparity of the, you know, the wealth distribution and the wage gap. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like you said, that's a whole, that's a whole, a whole other show. Be happy to talk to you about. But so law enforcement's role is to basically to facilitate rehousing people to the best of our ability as law enforcement agencies, but recognizing that public safety and law enforcement is our primary goal. Got it. We've got about two minutes left. And so okay. let me conclude by giving you a chance to tell the voters why you're the best candidate. I'm the best candidate because I'm, I'm the candidate that's got the most um, hands-on experience. As, as, as this program, you, you play it back, you know, my, my experience with homeless situations, my experience with, with the you know, drug issues, and also 
you know, there's there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of talk. Basically, I'm I'm the guy. I'm I'm the candidate who is truly the outsider. I don't have any roots in Sonoma County law enforcement. I don't have any loyalties or allegiances to, to Sonoma County law enforcement. And not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I come up here with a fresh set of eyes and I come up here with a real practical sense and a practical approach of how to get things done. And I'm also a guy who was a leader. I was a person who, you know, as a community police officer, I, I led and interacted and built relationships with the community that I served. And then also as a, as a sergeant and a line sergeant, I led um, my officers. I like to make that. I read, a, I read a, a quote recently. It said, people lean into their management experience. You know, I managed this, I managed that, I did this, I did that. You manage things, you lead people. And, and I am a leader of people. And, and I'm a person that's um, approachable and relatable and has a real grounded, common sense approach to how these issues could be addressed. And also, you know, you alluded earlier to resistance from within. I know that once the deputies understand who I am and where I'm coming from, they'll appreciate me as their leader and know that their lives are going to be so much better and so much more rewarding and productive. And also having worked at every single community, not only in San Francisco, but throughout my life and my world travels, that, that people understand that I am a, a person of the people and I will be a sheriff for all and a sheriff for the people. So I'm just, I'm the different breed of cat that I think this, this county is really um, hungry for and hopefully they're ready for. And that's what sets me apart from the other candidates. Terrific. We've been talking with Carl Tenenbaum, who is one of the four candidates running for sheriff in Sonoma County. Carl, thanks for being with us tonight. Greg, I can't thank you enough. And that wraps up our hour. Tune in next Sunday night at 8 p.m. for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on 104.9 KRCB-FM. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutbeatNews.com. I love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to Broken down Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.